Historians. This is Historical AF. I'm Keena. And I'm Natalie. We are a historian and a special guest bringing you the funny and historical kitty nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. I'm so excited to have like a real live cat expert. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Worked hard to get here. Yes. Her life is cats. She rescues cats. Oh, yes. yes. I love it so much. I loved your story the other day about naming that cat Arkansas and it looked drunk. And I was like, yep, <laughs> checks out. Yeah. Everyone at work, because a lot of people don't know I'm from Arkansas, like that I haven't been there long. And I, I was like dying. I was like, I named these kittens after states and Arkansas turned out to be drunk and wobbly. And I was like, it's perfect. He's a drunk redneck. And they were all just like, oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm from Arkansas. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. We can talk about it. Nobody else can. Yeah. It's like when you make fun of a sibling or something. I'm like, I can say that, but you can't. Yeah. And you might recognize Natalie. She's been on a mini gab or two. She went to college with Ashley and I, although I never met you in college. We were there at the same time. Yes, we were, but we didn't meet. Small world. <laughs> we met after, but then yeah. didn't remember that we met after. Sure. <laughs> yeah, we did meet at Ashley's wedding. So tell everybody about what you do. I did not introduce it very well. (laughs) She's like, she plays with cats and names them. Uh, I work at Best Friends Animal Society, which is an animal rescue organization. I work in their Los Angeles location. I am a program coordinator in the cat department. And we rescue cats and dogs and outside of L.A., everything else. (laughs) But in L.A., just cats and dogs because that's where the need is. That's so exciting. Best Friends is all over the place. There's one in Austin, right? Yes, they do have, I don't know if they have a physical location, but they do have a heavy presence. Like I know they have people who are plugged into the shelters and providing support, connecting local rescues with each other. We discovered years ago that we had all this wealth of information of things like trial and error type stuff that we found that worked. So we created like open and available public resources that other rescues could access. And we have people who go on in-bed programs into shelters where they're really struggling uh, with their save rate and help them use what we already know works to fix that issue. So when I first started working, I kept hearing things about and the program in Edinburgh and the program in Edinburgh and I was like wait we have people in Scotland send me there <laughs> I met Edinburgh Texas and I was really really disappointed with that but when they first got to Edinburgh Texas I want to say their save rate was like a 30 percent or something really oh, wow. low but they're at 90 something now which is considered a save wow. rate it was considered no kill if it's above 90 percent because uh, oh, that's wow. taking into account, obviously, that there's going to be animals that just medically mm-hmm. are not savable. We have people in Arkansas, too. They're actually the Walton family is helping to build a center in oh. northwest Arkansas, like the Bentonville area. Yeah. Yeah. Without Walmart uh, money. It's nice okay. up there. <laughs> yeah. My family doesn't know that's happening, and I really hope <laughs> they never find out. <laughs> it was funny. We were having a like a national Zoom update meeting and they were talking about like each region giving an update on what, what happened last year and their goals for this year. And they were kind of going over in Arkansas where the need was and one is Pine Bluff. Oh yeah. And they were like, oh, you know, 
this town is known for having more prisons than churches. <laughs> and I was like, that sounds funny. And then they're like, we're so excited to go there. And I was like, okay. <laughs> It's always a fun thing because I worked in North Little Rock, Arkansas for mm-hmm. so long. And it's always a fight over which one's the most dangerous. <laughs> like who's going to be number one this year? So yeah. I think my first year working at the library, we were number one in the country for like gun deaths. And I was like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's why like yeah. when I got the job, they're like, okay, well, there's some gang activity here. And I was like, <laughs> and they're like, no, we're actually serious. <laughs> I was like, oh, Oh, shit. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really excited you're here for part one. The, I think cats get kind of like a bad rap in history because everybody talks about dogs and everybody talks about other cool animals in history. But I think cats are overlooked. I'm going to go into that a little bit. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we just jump right into yeah. it? So I was doing history segment. I chose to just do the history of the domestic cat and how it became the domestic cat. So for a long time, it was widely accepted that domestication of cats started in Egypt around 4,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is what archaeological evidence supported in that that was the most abundant evidence. But recently, DNA evidence has come to light to show that Current domestic cats and wild cats DNA is too far removed for that short of a timeline. And domestication would have begun anywhere from 10,000 to 15,000 years ago. Wow. Wow. I know. I was like, what? <laughs> My brain just uh, floated a little bit. <laughs> now, most people agree that the earlier range, like the 15,000 year range is just not practical knowing that humans would have been stone age hunter gatherers. Like there, there would have been zero reason for us to even try to domesticate cats and just take that off the table on the minimum estimate range of the 10,000 years. It kind of assumes that multiple species were being tamed and domesticated over certain areas either simultaneously or in pockets over a long period of time. The only issue is not a lot of study has been done into this period of cat-human relations. And a lot of that is because there isn't much in the way of archaeological records to study. Mm -hmm. Before we get too into it, just a few words that are used. I want to make sure people understand what I, I mean when I'm using them. So wildcats in the context of this research is referring to small breed wild cats, not big cats like lions and leopards. Tamed cats means wild cats that are taken from their natural wild environment, usually as a baby, brought into human settlements to either attempt to make them pets or to serve some purpose. And it usually only has some varying degrees of success as whether or not they can tame them. Semi-domestic cats are cats that are a few generations removed from wild ancestors but genetically speaking, they're still the same species as their wild ancestors. So when they went to start studying this, they had to keep a few things in mind. So actual domestication alters DNA over time as we select for desired traits, whether it be physical or behavioral. Mm -hmm. So early cats, whether they were tamed or domestic or semi-domestic or wild cats, it would have been 
impossible to tell them apart except by their behavior. And since we can't read behavior from archaeological records, it makes it really hard to tell what the remains were. So we have remains from around 7,000 to 6,000 BCE that were found in and around the city of Jericho and other cities in the Fertile Crescent. But because they would be identical to wildcats, it's hard to tell, like, were these wild animals who wandered into human civilizations? Were they brought in as tamed pets? Or were they possibly even, like, hunted for pelts or meat and their remains left in the cities? So we know that they were interacting with these animals, but we don't know what the relationship was. Oh, that's frustrating that there's no way to really know. I know. A lot of the remains, just because of time, DNA isn't really possible to study. Mm -hmm. They have found some that they can, but a lot they can't. It's too degraded. So that makes it hard too. We also see in the years following that, for like the next thousand years, we start to see rock paintings and statuettes of cat-like animals crop up in the same area. But they're very ambiguous, so it's hard to tell if it was a wild cat or even a large cat like a lion. Mm -hmm. By 8,000 BCE, the domestication of dogs is extremely evident in multiple ancient societies, but we don't find a lot of evidence of widespread domestication of cats. Our first tangible clue comes not from the Fertile Crescent, but from the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Cyprus, we know at the lowest sea levels, Mediterranean Sea would never have been low enough to be connected to the mainland. So it would have always been an island. So this means any animals' remains that are found there had to either fly there, swim there, or be brought there. At this point, we know there are no true domestic animals in Eastern Mediterranean, aside from a few dogs in random civilizations. So any animals crossing to Cyprus, like I said, would have been wild animals or inadvertent hitchhikers. And we are also assuming just based on studying modern day wildcats in the area that wildcats at this time would have also been really adverse to swimming. So they wouldn't have chosen to swim over. Yeah, that makes sense. So they have found cat remains on Cyprus that date back to 7,500 BCE. And this is around the same time that the first human settlements are found. So it's highly likely that they were deliberately brought over. Mm -hmm. Boats at the time were very small. So it's unlikely that cats would have been able to stow away unnoticed on boats. This means that they would have been intentionally brought over. This implies that there was already a practice on the mainland of taming wild cats. And that's where they brought them over. We find on other islands, such as Crete, Sardinia, similar instances of cats in these civilizations. They were probably brought over because of mice. At -hmm. this point in history, these civilizations would have already been storing grains and been dealing with rodent problems. So they would have brought cats over to deal with the mice, which then implies that they were already had a probably built-in history of taming wild cats to help them deal with their rodent problems. Now, based on this evidence, we can assume that the practice of taming cats to deal with mice had existed for at least 10,000 years, like 10,000 years ago. A lot of it, when I was doing the research, it's sort of being like, it was done here. It makes sense. It would be done here Mm -hmm. in similar setting type things. 
of course, once again, they have no way of telling based on the remains if they were wild, tamed, or semi-domestic. They're assuming that all the cats on the island would have been tamed or semi-domestic cats since they were brought over. There are a few random cases on Cyprus where they found cat remains buried near human grave sites, which would indicate that that particular animal was loved or cherished by that person. It wasn't extremely common, so it doesn't indicate that that was a common practice to have close relationships with these animals, but it does indicate a start of that sort of mindset. I'm loving the deduction, you know, like little clues that can be like, well, if this happened, then this meant that this Mm -hmm. happened. This is so fascinating. If we follow the emergence of the house mouse, then we can really trace where cats start to become purposely taken in by humans. So the house mouse would have made the need for these tame cats widespread. The house mouse or mus, that's a hard word, (laughs) musculus. Sounds I good to me. <laughs> I, I looked up some of these words before and I could not find pronunciation guides. So I was like, winging it. So the house mouse is one of the few species of rodents that adapted itself to live alongside humans and thrived off of our societies. So we can safely assume that the history of these two species are very closely intertwined. The house mouse origins can be traced back to a wild species from somewhere in northern India that probably existed long before humankind. Oh, wow. Yeah, so their ancestors are older than us. (laughs) (laughs) They would have slowly over time spread east and west following naturally occurring food sources until they reached the Fertile Crescent and the earliest civilization known to store harvested grain. The civilization, the Natufans, would have lived here between 12,500 and 10,200 years ago. Now, we have found in some of these old grain stores that these civilizations built evidence of mice, teeth, and bones going back 11,000 years. These cultures started as hunter-gatherers and then moved into farming cultures based on the abundance of local grains and cereals. We do know that the Natufans and other smaller cultures would then force back into hunter-gatherer lifestyles due to flooding and other natural disasters. So these civilizations, we do have evidence that while cats were around them and we have evidence of be it bones or preserved footprints and things of wild cats or tamed cats being inside the civilizations, it is assumed that they either purposely tamed or partially domesticated wild cats during their farming periods to help control the rodents who were getting into their grain stores. And then when the flooding and natural disasters happened and they had to become nomadic again, they would have re-released these animals into the wild and they would have bred back into the wild counterparts. We don't know how long they would have had cats. They lived as hunters for many, many years. So they would have had time to at least get a pretty good semi-domestic population up and running. But we run into the problem that wild cats and domestic cats can interbreed. So it's fun times. (laughs) There's also a chance that the cats were just naturally attracted to the rodents around the human settlements and learned to live next to humans and become comfortable and safe with humans. Mm -hmm. And that the humans tolerated them because they were pest control. And this is considered like a a natural form of domestication or semi-domestication. 
So we have archaeological records from about 10,000 years ago that show several species of wildcats that lived in the Fertile Crescent and some surrounding areas that could have possibly been attracted to the concentrations of mice. For most of history, it was popular opinion that domestic cats were descendants of multiple different wild species in different areas of the world. Mm-hmm. These are just a handful of cats that historians, scientists, people believed at one point in time might have been the ancestors of some domestic cats. So we have the Felis Chos, which is the Egyptian jungle cat. This cat is on the larger end of the spectrum for wild cats, between 10 and 20 pounds. They were really too big to be practical for rodent control. They couldn't really fit in the small spaces to get after the rodents. Mm -hmm. But we do know that toward the end of the Egyptian history, they were tamed in really large numbers, but they did not have any lasting success in domesticating them. A lot of historians assume, based on the large numbers, that earlier generations probably also attempted to tame and domesticate them in smaller numbers, which is why they became so popular. Oh, okay. Our next species is the Felis margarita. I'm sure that's not how you say it, but that's how it's spelled. <laughs> Sounds very fancy. <laughs> I know. It's literally margarita. I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and this is a sand cat because this cat was really biologically built to live in deserts. It probably would not have been close enough to brain storing civilizations for it to have made sense to be domesticated. But it was a cat that was present in this point in history. Another one was Felis viverina. And this is a fishing cat. It's found farther east in what is now Pakistan. Since their diet was mostly fish and aquatic birds, they also would not have been ideal candidates for rodent control. Now we're going to go even farther east to Central Asia and China, where we have the Manul, or the palace cat. This is a most shaggy boy, big floof-floof. Oh, I man. Like it in my like, yeah. There's like sketches in the book I was reading. I was like, oh, uh-huh. that's so cute. Um, and we do have evidence that these ancient civilizations in those areas did occasionally tame and deliberately keep them from rodent control, but we don't have much outside of that. Next, we're going to pass all the way across the ocean to Central America. This would be pre Columbian. We have the Jagurundi which is an otter-like cat that was probably also occasionally tamed for rodent control. This is only a handful of species that were around in this time that were popularly believed to have maybe been the ancestors, I almost said descendants, ancestors of domestic cats. We now know, thanks to DNA, that none of these species ever became fully domesticated and none of them are direct ancestors for today's house cats. We oh. now know that all domestic cats are direct descendants of one species, the Arabian wildcat, Felis sylvestris libica. Sylvester. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sylvestris. I, I think it has something to do with the stripes. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating that it can be traced back to one. That's so cool. This species and is the descendants of this species, like the wild descendants, are still found in northern Africa and parts of the Middle East. And if you look up, then you can Google this and you'll see species or pictures of cats that just look like normal kind of scruffy tabby street cats, but they're wild cats. <sighs> Water break. <laughs> 
Despite oh. earlier popular beliefs that some breeds of domestic cats were hybrids, we now know that all domestic cats descended from this one species. In current times, there are four main subspecies of Felis sylvestris. So the Libica that we talked about, the Felis sylvestris sylvestris, which is found in Europe and the UK, the Felis sylvestris, Felis sylvestris ornata, which is found in Asia, and the Felis sylvestris cafra, which is found in southern Africa. Oh, cool. The book I use for most of my research, Cat Sense by John Bradshaw, he really delves into modern attempts to domesticate these various species. It's super interesting in that they actually struggle to domesticate the other branches of this cat species. And there's actually a documentary on, I think it's Netflix, about the Scottish wildcats, which would be a Felis sylvestris sylvestris, mm-hmm. and how it can't really be domesticated. Very interesting. I was like, oh, I know what he's talking about when I got to this part. <laughs> um, Adding that to my book list. <laughs> and he has a dog one, too. It's Cat oh, Sense cool. and Dog Sense. They're phenomenal because they combine science and history to kind of explain our relationships with our favorite pets. Oh, I love that. So we know because only this one subspecies was able to be domesticated that there must have been unique characteristics about these early wildcat combined with the environment they lived in that made domestication possible. There must be some genetic basis that starts the process for tameness. What it is, is a little bit harder to find, which I'll kind of get into a little bit. Oh, well, I'm getting into right now. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) One thing of note is that we know from modern days back through history that domestic and wild cats can and do interbreed with no genetic issues. Most species of subspecies of the same wild cats can interbreed also. Considering this and how far mankind has spread domestic cats, it's believed that they're very pure Felis silvestris wildcats left anywhere. Oh, wow. They have actually done genetic studies on a lot of these various, especially the silvestris, silvestris, since it's in Europe and much easier to get to. I know the ones in South Africa was the ones in China. They have a really hard time catching. Actually, in Basically everywhere else because of turmoil in the Middle East and stuff. Mm-hmm. They just have a hard time getting samples. But it is assumed just knowing the mating habits of wildcats and considering they've had 10,000 years to interbreed and mix around, that even if a genetic test says pure on a wild cat, it's assumed that a few generations outside of the range of the testing is probably a domestic cat. They have documented that not only will wild cat males mate with domestic females, but domestic males will go out into the wild and mate with wild females. And the offspring are usually a mix of various levels of tameness. Usually only one or two of the litter could be brought in and live with humans. So this makes it harder to really study the DNA evidence throughout the years because it's been contaminated. Mm -hmm. And we also know that because any small pockets of domestic cats that may have existed, say, let's 
her theory says Cyprus had a small but thriving domestic population. When that civilization ended, those cats would have mixed back into their wild wild counterparts and would be indistinguishable for us now. So it's hard to trace genetically exactly where there would have been pockets of domestication. Yay, horny cats. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's really interesting that they like seek out, you know, domestic will seek out a wild cat. Like it just, it never dawned on me. Mm -hmm. There was just like seamless between the two. Yeah. And I think one of the fun points he makes is that a lot of people insist like Siamese or Burmese are their own species derived of another wildcat. And they're not. We do know based on genetics that say like the cats in certain parts, like we know, and I'll get into it, like where their ancestor would have come from, like what route based on their genetics. Mm-hmm. Like I think it was like Sri Lanka, they discovered instead of getting cats probably from other parts of Asia, it would have come across the Indian Ocean from Africa based oh. on the genetics. I recommend this book. It's super I had no idea that I needed to know this much about cat genetics until now. <laughs> I'm so bummed. Yeah. And he even went into like the prehistoric ancestor of all of these species and how when Pangaea was a continent, how they would have uh, migrated to different parts of the world. That is fascinating. So because we do know that they have this ability to interbreed and has led to really diverse DNA in today's cats, which we are unintentionally responsible for. Most scientists and historians have concluded that not one but several populations of scavenging cats were probably domesticated either at different times, hundreds or even thousand years apart, and then at some point either merged back into their wild counterparts or merged with other sub-pockets of domestic cats. We know that this took place in Western Asia and or Northeast Africa, but beyond that, more research is required. And that goes back into that getting into these areas to study in great detail, to be able to genetically test remains and current wildcats. It's hard. That area is full of conflict. Yeah. So I'm just going to read a little quote from his, well, no, it's a long quote, but I'm going to read it because I thought he summed it up nicely. So the prehistory of cat is thus the result of many fortuitous interactions among human intent, human affection for cute animals, and cat biology. It is far more haphazard process than domestication of other animals, sheep, goats, cattle, and pigs that took place at the same time. Domestic dogs of different types were already emerging, showing that people of the time could channel their domestic animals into forms that were more useful and easier to handle than their predecessors. But for thousands of years, the cat remained essentially a wild animal, interbreeding with the local wild populations, such that in many places the tame and wild must have formed a continuum rather than polar opposites. And then he he goes on to reiterate that they were identical and undistinguishable except by behavior. And a unique thing with cats he goes into is they would have been chosen for characteristics that are counterintuitive to domestication. So normally other species they're choosing for docility, low reaction, dependence on humans to tell them what to do and when to do it. Mm-hmm. Cats needed to be ferocious, independent, and self-motivated hunters at the same time tolerating and being okay with human interaction, which were two contrasting characteristics that would have made domestication a little more complicated. 
Wow, that's it. I am a cat now. Like this is how I describe myself, like on a resume, self-motivated. Yeah. <laughs> Ferocious worker. Don't like if- really want to be around people, but I will tolerate them. <laughs> yeah. And despite all this, the first records we have of cats that depict them firmly part of a family, they are so evidently inspiring feelings of affection by this time. And yet we don't know how they got there. And the science is still catching up to how do we go from not even having records of cats existing in relations to people to all of a sudden, oh, what now the cat is in their lap in this photo or drawing. I will allow you to touch me, human. Only briefly. For cats to make the transition into domestication, it would need to become both an object of utility and affection. So we have little direct evidence of pet keeping outside of dogs here and there in Neolithic cultures of Eastern Eastern Mediterranean. But by studying present day hunter gatherers who do have pets of a kind, we can kind of get insight in how these early cultures may have interacted with the wild species of their days. We see a lot of these modern hunter-gatherers. The women and children will take wild baby animals and keep them as pets. It's also not uncommon that when these animals grow up and become unruly and hard to handle, they would chase them back into the wild. Or depending on the species, they might eat them. But we can kind of gather that early hunter-gatherers probably did the same thing. And we can also assume that of all you say they, over the course of a year, bring in 25 baby animals to a settlement. One of them might have a personality and temperament, which would have allowed it to stay in the human settlement for the rest of its life. And we can kind of see how gradually over time, wild animals would have been slowly domesticated. A good modern example of this is in Australia. So we have the Aboriginal cultures, which are very nomadic, So in Australia, the Aboriginals, we often see them taking dingo puppies from the wild and keeping them as pets. This is usually their children who do this. So Mm -hmm. they say, ooh, cute thing I keep. And then when the puppy grows older and becomes aggressive or a nuisance, they chase it back into the wild. So this is a good example of probably what also happened in our early societies and and how domestication of both cats and dogs may have originally begun. So now we're going to move into more of like the concrete things that we we do know. So the first clear indication of a true pet cat comes from Egypt about 4,000 years ago. We see evidence of cats in their society at least 2,000 years earlier than this, so around 6,000 years ago. We start to see them appearing in paintings and carvings. The appearance of these early cat drawings could possibly be tame jungle cats that we already discussed. We know that they did tame jungle cats for a long period of time. There have been evidence of cats from these really early periods, about 5,700 years ago. They were buried with care, and they, he had healing fractures on his leg that indicated he would have been cared for. Aww. There are burial sites in which have cats buried with their humans. One had up to 17 cats. I believe it's my past life. we don't have evidence yet whether these were semi-domestic jungle cats or tame jungle cats we don't know what their genetic makeup was Uh, they're too deteriorated to really tell but we do know that cats are starting to show up in the society Mm -hmm. 
So we slowly start to see more paintings that show clearly striped and therefore probably the Felis Silvestris in outdoor scenes, meaning that they were aware of these species in their environment. We see cats painted in indoor settings, usually having a collar and type of leash, which would indicate that they were tamed wild cats and not domestics. In the early Middle Kingdom, about 4,000 years ago, there's a set of hieroglyphics that appears that is created specifically for the domestic cat to differentiate it from its wild counterparts. So we oh, know wow. that by, by 4,000 years ago, domestic cats are prevalent enough in their society that they need a new word for it. Now that's really cool. Yeah. This word, which <laughs> it's M-I-W, Mew, I'm going to go with Mew, would have actually become a common name for girls, which proves even further how integral the domestic cat came to their society. And while it is possible these cats may have been domesticated locally, knowing their history with the jungle cat makes this slightly doubtful. A new theory proposes that the early domestic cats were actually imported from farther north in the further fertile crescent. This is supported because we don't see much evidence of cats in pre-dynastic Egypt. This also meant that the cats would have been valued and costly possessions, which accounts for their later reverence. It would also mean that they would not have many opportunities to mate with their own species, and so would have intermated with local wildcats and tamed cats causing mixed gene pools on both sides. Oh, cool. Because of, they would have been like de-domesticated to a certain extent, it would explain that early 2,000-year period before we really see a lot of evidence of pet cats where they would have to like re-domesticate the species. Mm-hmm. At this point, we see the domestic role of the cat emerge much clearer in Egyptian society. We start seeing them depicted as laying in laps and in baskets. Members of the nobility were deeply attached to their pets. The pharaoh Amenhotep III, cats Osiris Ta-Mayut, which means Osiris the she-cat, had her own sarcophagus in his tomb. Whoa. Yeah. At this point, the cats are still more for the aristocracy, with little evidence of them in the working class. Oh, interesting. Still earlier on in the time period. And then we gradually start to see artwork of them appear in everyday settings. But then we also see artwork of them in fanciful settings. There was one of a cat who was standing on his back legs with a little pack slung over his shoulder (laughs) like he was going to work or something. So it was clear they had become also so ingrained that they wrote stories about them and myths and fables and those sort of things. Mm Mm-hmm. We also see evidence of them being important rodent control for grain and food storage. They also could have been valued for an expertise in killing snakes. So many venomous snakes lived in that area and still do. We have records from as recently as the 1900s of cats being witnessed in Egypt killing venomous snakes. Oh, yikes. Yeah. It probably was not their primary use, but it would have made them love more. It, a, <laughs> yeah, it would have been a secondary use outside of rodent control and pets. Oh, man. You know, that makes perfect sense. If I'm in Egypt and my cat kills a cobra, I would probably worship it now, too. <laughs> and um, the cats 
of this period were larger than our domestic cats. So they would have been better predators for snakes Mm -hmm. than our current cats. Yeah. So around 3,500 years ago, we start seeing cats take a religious significance. It starts with depictions of cats on tombs, walls, depictions of the sun. God occasionally have the head of a cat instead of a human. We see deities that were originally associated with big cats gradually become associated with domestic cats over is, is a process that transforms over like a thousand years. The main one, there were four mentioned, but the main one is Bassett. Everyone knows Bassett. Mm-hmm. So she was originally a lion goddess when her religion first started. Forget how long ago it was. 4,800 years ago. I wrote it down. I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> so her worship began around that time. We originally see her with the head of a lion carrying the serpent on her forehead. Over the course of 2,000 years, she becomes, as the domestic cat becomes more prevalent, we see her becoming more associated with smaller cats. It starts with pictures of her with small cats around her, presumably her attendants. By 2,600 years ago, her lion head has completely evolved to the image of a domestic cat. She becomes associated with playfulness, fertility, motherhood, and female sexuality all characteristics that can be tied back to a domestic cat. Her popularity spread throughout Egypt during the late period in the Palmitate era. So this is around 2,600 years ago to 2,050 years ago. For a time, her annual feast was the most important date on the calendar. We have many Greek records of this and some really interesting descriptions of what they did. They would basically get on boats that started in like her town and travel up the Nile and be like singing and dancing and stop at towns and like throw things at them. I, didn't really, I was just like, I don't know what's going on here. Maybe I misunderstood the description, but I was like, I don't. That sounds like a party. Get to dance, get to be on a boat, party barge, yeah. get at people. No, an interesting thing when I was reading this book, he just once calls this religion a cult, which wasn't really explained. I think sometimes with pantheons, people refer to it as like the cult of bastard. Oh, okay. Um, I was just like, mm. it's not necessarily like. I was thinking know. of the modern interpretation. Yeah, of the word yeah. yeah. And I've heard it like if you listen or if you watch uh, a lot of the Egyptian documentaries, they'll call it like the cult of Ra or mm. the cult of Amun Ra. That makes sense. It's presumed that this religion and its popularity was one of the main reasons Egyptians were so in love with and so protective of cats. So it, it was sort of self-feeding in that cats became popular, morphed into the religion, which made them more popular. Mm-hmm. We have records from Greek historian Herotus recorded that when a family cat would die of natural causes, all the members would gather and mourn and shave their eyebrows in marks of respect. He even reported seeing Egyptians struggle to keep cats from entering burning buildings versus trying to put out the fires. Aww. Some 500 years later after his writings, when Egypt was part of the Roman Empire, Roman historian wrote, If any kill a cat, whether willfully or otherwise, he is certainly dragged away to death by the multitude. For fear of this, if any by chance find these creatures dead, they stand aloof and with lamentable cries and protestations tell everybody that they found it dead. Like to a point, like if you found a dead cat, you stopped and you made a big show of finding it dead so no one would blame you for killing it. He yeah. even recorded they killed a Roman 
um, he didn't specify whether it was an officer or just a Roman citizen, but they killed a Roman who had accidentally killed a cat without regards for consequences of what it would mean for themselves. So cats were extremely revered. To kill a cat accidentally or otherwise was considered a crime. But then we have something really weird in contrast with this, and this is when the morbid comes in. So because cats became so prevalent, they had a real issue with population control. So Egyptians would have to regularly practice infanticide with newborn baby kittens. No. Most believe they chose to kill new, 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 newborn kittens because they would have had no distinct features. Their eyes would have been closed. They would have not had a chance to bond with them. And it would have been too difficult to try and kill an adult cat. Oh, that's still so sad. Now, I'm just going to go in three steps of morbid. That was step one. We're going to go step two. Okay. So throughout history, we actually know that this has been super common practice wherever cats have been. Because cats can breed like crazy. I know. I'm like, I'm going to laugh, but I'm going to cry. Oh, Amber came in. Amber in the comments on Patreon came in right at that comment. She's like, no, baby. It's going to get worse, Amber. (laughs) So because cats were tend to follow whether intentionally or unintentionally where rodents were and would then breed wildly themselves, the only real means of population control was mass murder. Up until as late as the 1940s, we have records of, in rural America, people gathering up cats and killing them to control the population, throwing them in bags and drowning them or beating oh them. Oh, Yeah. Oh, that's horrific. Because we were talking about earlier about the, the mindset towards cat. He talks about in later chapters how, like, thousands of years of cats being borderline pet, borderline pest control, borderline pest themselves has built a subconscious idea into our society that their lives are not as valued. Oh, yeah. Which has led to that negative connotation. It's one of the things that's led to the negative connotation. Luckily, we have veterinary medicine now, and we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. Stay new to your pets. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now we go third step of morbid. (laughs) And this is where me and Egypt go from, I love Egypt. Egypt worship cats and kills people who kills cats. To me and Egypt, we're going to break up and never speak again. So in Egypt, they had an industry called sacred animals. Mm-hmm. Which means they had a booming sacrificial animal industry. Oh, no. Cats were ritually buried in large numbers, estimated to be millions Wait, millions I'm sorry, my brain's not comprehending that that's a oh no millions oh my god i'll get into the why but i want to just go into whew. my face just like <laughs> mummification of cats was reserved for treasured pets and probably did but continue to be a practice throughout egyptian history as long as there was mummification but this number was so small compared to the overall numbers of cats that were found, because these cats were offered to deities as sacrifices. Oh, no. So sacred animals becomes a major industry between 2,400 and 2,000 years ago. Cats were not the only animals. 
They found mummies of lions, jungle cats, cattle, crocodiles, rams, dogs, baboons, mongoose, da 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 Some examples is they found 4 million mummified ibis, which is a type of water bird, in one catacomb and 1.5 in another. <sighs> wow. So they're just sitting in their temple and you're a bored ass priest being like, well, what are we going to do today? Let's take out a couple thousand birds. Well, I'll explain what they were doing with them. Our modern analysis shows that the mummification was done to the same quality standards as done to humans, and that the wrappings were chosen based on personal preference and budget, ranged from simple cloth wrappings to ornate caskets. What is even more disturbing is these sacred cats were bred specifically for mummification. We know that because these temples had catteries adjacent to them. These would have been close to the public, but the public would have known based on noise and smell what was going on here. They were attended to by priests, and they were well taken care of during their lives by the standards of those days. Stomach contents, um, because during mummification, they remove stomach contents and preserve it separately. We know that they ate well. X-rays show the mummies ranged in age from as young as two months to as old as 12 months. It probably wasn't practical to allow them to live past this if they were only being raised to die. That is horrifying. Yes. I mean, if you look at the modern farm industry, chickens is a good example. Probably very similar. They would have been slightly better taken care of because they were considered like sacred objects. The cats would have been killed and mummified in a very ritualistic way. And then they were sold to tempers, to temple visitors to offer up to the various deities, specifically usually the cat deities. It is assumed it was almost, I don't know how familiar you are with like some Japanese culture. When you go to a temple, you can get a charm and write your wish on it and then offer it up. So it would be like that. You would buy a mummy to offer up to the deity, sort of believed that the thought was based on their beliefs of the afterlife, that because of the way the cat was killed and mummified, it would become a vessel to carry your wish prayer to said deity. For Egyptians, the afterlife was more important than the actual life we lived. Mm -hmm. And so for them, they would have seen it not as, quote unquote, killing a cat because of the way it died. And it would have been like a revered thing, but still horrible. Millions of cats. Oh, that's a lot. So they would buy the mummy, offer it up with a prayer and leave it on the shrine temple in that area. And then when the mummies would begin to accumulate, the priest would move them into back catacombs. And this is how many of these uh, animal mummies were preserved. But we don't even know exactly how many cats they sacrificed this way. It is assumed and known that many of these cemeteries were lost, that either just they weren't sealed properly and slowly eroded over time. They were looted and destroyed. There are records of early archaeologists coming across mounds of what looked like white dust and discovering that it was white cat bones and plaster. Oh, God. Yeah. 
Well, probably uh, you had like in the 19th century people snorting mummies, so I'm sure they. Oh, hmm. mm-hmm. here we go. Lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they. I, I, there was nothing about snorting, at least that I saw. I, they uh, mostly ate, but I just picture snorting lines of cat. Like that's just all I yeah. think of. Several other cemeteries were excavated wholesale, and their contents ground up and used as fertilizer. Some locally, some exported. One shipment of mummies alone sent to London weighed 19 tons, out of which just one cat mummy was removed and presented to the British Museum before the remainder were ground into powder. Just one? We currently only have a few hundred out of the million of cat mummies that were discovered. The rest were destroyed and used as fertilizer, just allowed to self-destruct in the wild. And it's believed that we only discovered a handful because they weren't properly sealed. Probably it wasn't like the Pharaoh's tombs where they were as concerned about it being invaded and things. Yeah. So F Egyptians. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That took a turn. I know. I was like, I, I knew about the Egyptian worship of cats. And the, the whole part about, like, killing kittens was sad, but I understood it because they didn't really have another option at mm-hmm. that time. And I get it would it would be easier physically and emotionally for something that tiny versus, like, an animal you've bonded with. But the whole, like, not just the cats, but, like, all the animals. He also makes a point that we may actually owe some of the modern domestic cats okayness with being in confined spaces like houses and things to those catteries because obviously some of the cats would have escaped here and there but they would have been cats that were raised in confined spaces and I was like that's just sick so F Matthew one positive that did come from it is these mummies were excellent sources of scientific study so through x-rays and other studies they have found that all of these cats, every single one of them, was a striped tabby. Oh, cool. No black, no tabby or white, and none of them had the sort of blotchy swirl tabbies that we see a lot today. We actually don't see evidence for color pattern and variation in domestic cats until much, much later. Oh, wow. Outside of Egypt. He talked a lot about genetics. I'm not going to go into it because it was like a whole chapter, but it's so cool. I would really recommend looking into it. Basically, all cats have the genes for different patterns and different coat colors. But because their natural environment needs a certain type of camouflage, any cats born with those off-liers would not have survived to mate. Oh. So you think like an albino wildcat isn't going to survive. Like all cats could deck technically give birth to a black baby think like a jaguar but say it's a lion instead but they're not going to be able to hunt efficiently in their environment and so they won't survive okay he also goes in and i i'm sure most cat lovers know about the whole calicos are females and the same genes that make calicos females are also what mean most genders are boys oh okay so the gender gene is recessive And we know from genetics that normally you need two recessive genes for that to show up. So like with brown eyes and blue eyes, if you have both, you're going to be brown eyed. But if you have two blue, you're going to be blue eyed. 
Now with cats, it's different. So cats who have both the dominant like brown pattern and the ginger will be calicos. Oh. Or t- torvies or any sort of tricolored. Mm-hmm. So what happens is different parts of the skin have the different genes. So one will have the dominant gene, one will have the recessive. And that's why it shows up in different patterns. Mm-hmm. And the reason most boys are, or most gingers are boys is because that is a recessive gene and boys only have one color marker because it's on the X chromosome. The Y chromosome does not carry the coat pattern or color markers. So most girls, if they have the recessive, recessive ginger gene and the dominant gene, they turn out as a tricolor. Because it shows up too. So for a girl to be an actual ginger, she has to have two recessive genes. That's so interesting. I never knew the cat genetics was so fascinating. It's so I was just like and like texting my coworkers like, oh my god, and they're like, it's late. Stop. (laughs) We do also see from go back to the mummies. Okay. We do also see from the mummies that they are 15% larger than modern domestic cats. Which is unusual because usually when an animal is domesticated, we domesticate for smaller to be more manageable. This wasn't true for cats. We do know that these mummies were 10% larger than their wild cat components. They bred them for larger. And then as cats moved away from rodent control, they would slowly start to get smaller over the years. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to move out of Egypt because I'm done. So outside of Egypt, we don't have the same large-scale evidence of domestication of cats. We usually find evidence that they were there after the fact. So we don't always know how they got there, but we can make really good educated guesses. Yeah. Around 3,200 to 2,800 years ago, they're the seafaring Phoenicians, which dominated sea trade. And they would have introduced cats tamed or partially along their trade routes because they would have had them on their boats to protect their grain stores. Mm-hmm. Evidence shows that both the Greeks and the Romans would have imported cats from Egypt more as a novelty than rodent control because they had weasels and polecats, which are the ancestors of ferrets, and they were much more effective rodent control than cats are. In Greece, And in Rome, cats would also become associated with goddesses, Artemis in Greece and Diana in Rome, though not as to the same extent as in Egypt, but Mm -hmm. still. Around 2,900 years ago, we see other languages in the Fertile Crescent start to make a distinction between domestic and wild cats. Many of these cultures may have traded with Egypt, first or second hand through the Phoenicians or the Romans. As we start seeing more trade routes open up, we know that Romans would have probably carried cats by boat to India and later to China through Mongolia and the Silk Road, which have deposited domestic cats along this route. By 5th century AD, cats are well established in China and then in Japan roughly 100 years after that, probably through China. Here they were more used to protect silk moth cocoons as they were highly valuable. Plus they were like, that's cute. (laughs) (laughs) They would have spread from there to other Asian countries. Though, like I was saying earlier, DNA tells us that some of these cats, such as Sri Lanka, would have come actually from Africa over the Indian Sea instead of down through Asia. Mm -hmm. And by studying, he also goes into studying the genetics of the different domestic cats throughout Asia. You can tell how 
like I think it was Vietnam, he, they can tell that they've been really isolated for a long mm-hmm. time from other species, which is really cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Following the Roman Empire, because Rome did all that shit. They, <laughs> oh, Rome. <laughs> they probably inadvertently took cats with them wherever they went. There are records that early sailors were very superstitious about mm-hmm. not having cats on board their ship. Um, we see motifs of cats on massive ships. It's assumed that at least one or two cats were on every ship that went out, and it would made sense that either kittens or the adult cats may have gotten off the ship or been given as gifts as they traveled. Along every step of the way, domestic cats would have been interbreeding with smaller pools of domestic cats or semi-domestic cats and also with local wild cats causing greater variation in the species, which is when we start to see more coat colors, you know, different shapes and sizes. Now, one thing to note as I'm going to, from here on, it's pretty obvious to tell where cats go and how they go. But one interesting thing, aside from the history of like having to mass murder cats as pest control, he makes the point that due to their early association with religion in Egypt, Greece, and Rome, cats became stigmatized under the influence of Christianity. And I just feel like, why? Like, I just, like, I'm a Christian. I don't get it. Like, Mm -hmm. if your religion tells you that that's not a thing, then why does it bother you? Yeah. But anyway, so that is also something that has worked against cats up to modern history. The mindset would have hindered and slowed the transition from rodent control to pets. And in a lot of cultures, it still does today. Many believe that the years of veneration in Egypt is one of the main key factors into allowing cats to fully evolve into domestic because they had thousands of years of being revered. So it's ironic that this is also something that caused them to never fully be accepted into a lot of societies. And that's where I read them. Oh, wow. Wow. That was so incredibly fascinating. I know. I was like, I have to stop here. (laughs) Oh, wow. Like I said, I never knew I needed to know about cat genetics, but it that was incredible. Just what yeah. we found out and just the clues. It was like a Sherlock Holmes in how to figure this stuff out. I I, I learned so much. <laughs> I would love because he wrote this book like seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see an update if any more genetic stuff has been done. He also, I would love to read his dog version because he did that one too and see what the genetics tell us there. Mm-hmm. It's just, in history in general, genetics has really opened up so much to us. Yeah. And things we didn't know before. I was just like, what? 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 <laughs> The last episode, Arjun was talking about how we're in this really cool place of history where technology and archaeology and research and everything is kind of combining for once. And so as technology you know, keeps on getting more and more advanced, we're learning so much that we thought we knew. And then that's the part I love about history is when somebody, like you said, everybody assumed Egypt, but then it's like, bam, genetics. Yeah. Way I mean, Egypt is definitely can take the credit for like that final big push because they did it on such a big scale and they did it over a long enough period of time that it stuck, but they weren't like the only ones like that was widely consumed. Like, Oh, you know, maybe a wildcat wandered in here and there. It's like, no, there were probably a lot of early civilizations that had tame and semi-domestic pets. And we just aren't aware because 
they didn't record it. Yeah. All right. So for my segment, I am going to do funny. And it's not normally like funny, haha, kind of like funny, should have a smile on your face most of the time. There's a few things yeah. you just couldn't avoid. I mean, cats, <laughs> to do a true funny, you need video capabilities. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it's just like fun fact. So this is the fluffy and fantastic history of cats serving in war. <laughs> so my happy. brain was like, wait, what? <laughs> I know. It doesn't sound very funny, but it, it kind of is. Some of it is. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so animals. Sorry, been- my brain went to like a cartoon picture of a, a cat Napoleon almost instantly. I did find some cat armor while I was uh, researching. <laughs> oh, people love it. Make that. So animals have been used during wartime for as long as there have been wars. So get all the glory like elephants and dogs, you know, probably because they listen, they're predictable, and they actually do what they're told. But okay. never mind all that. Cats are just as equally outstanding and deserve, mm-hmm. de- deserve more credit. As being little little veterans. Mm-hmm. They're probably protecting the food stores. Yes. <laughs> we know that now. Yes. And I'm going to touch a little bit on some of the stuff you said. So we're going to start in Egypt, too. <laughs> Cats were worshipped in ancient Egypt. And as we all know, they never forgot. Pretty sure most cats are like, I am a god, you plebe. Give me food. Mm-hmm. And... They were <laughs> the next. They were mummified. Yes, we, we. Oh, I didn't know at the time when I was writing this. <laughs> Big sense. How, how many were being mummified? <laughs> and like you said, that killing a cat in ancient Egypt was punishable by death. And they were also top of the pantheon. So, like you were saying, Bastet or Bast, which I found my little my, my <gasps> sculpture. I have a Bast oh, sculpture, and. Like you said, oh, her ear broke. Oh, that's unfortunate. Don't curse me. <laughs> My mom bought these for me when I was like eight. So, so it's what? a miracle it's lasted this long. But So she's the goddess of oh, it's broke a playfulness, lot. fertility, and motherhood and female sexuality. So how would she curse you in that you don't have children or that you have too many children? No. <laughs> <laughs> But I did find that she originally started out as protecting pharaohs, but as she mm-hmm. evolved, like you said, with the, you know, in features, she also evolved into being a protector of households. So you could imagine she was very important because you want your household to be protected. And then also in ancient civilizations, fertility is uh, super important. Mm-hmm. It's not like today when people are like, no kids. Snip, snip. Yeah. <laughs> So obviously word got around that they were kind of obsessed with these fluff balls. Enter the Persians and not the cat breed. <laughs> so picture it's 525 BCE and war has been brewing between Egypt and Persia for a while at this point. The Persian king can Oh, I meant to look that up. Cambyses. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the probably. second is being all strategic and shit. And he says, probably hear me out less weapons more cats and they were like that checks out let's do this so at the battle of pelusium the image of a set was painted on their shields 
and they brought a bunch of cats and released them onto the battlefield. <laughs> He's on the battlefield. Uno made it. Wally, stop it. That is a lot of glass, cat. He's like, what, mom? Yeah, he's on the sham. So this was the Persians? Yes, the Persians. Okay. So they decide that they're just going to release tons of cats onto the battlefield. And because Egyptians lawfully could not hurt or kill cats, they also didn't want to endanger them because they loved them so much. They immediately surrendered. That's so sweet. Which honestly, same. If I saw a stampede of kitties running at me, I'd be like, what war? Come here, kitty. (laughs) Instead of that meme of release the kraken, it's release the cats. (laughs) Yes, you got to like protect them at all costs. Needless to say, this tactic allowed Persian forces to successfully storm the city and win the battle. Historian Herodotus noticed and or no, or noticed. Hey, that's (laughs) I read about that guy. Yes. He noted that 50,000 Egyptians fell that day while only 7,000 Persians lost their lives. And so this kicked off a Persian period of pharaohs in Egypt that lasted 200 years. It was a solid plan. This next one has to come with visual aids. I got a lot of fun. I have visual aids, but I don't know if they're to do with history. I just have a phone full of cat photos. All right. So this beautiful... Beautiful manuscript comes from 16th century Germany. Germany had researched many ways of using cats and even birds to spread poisonous gas in the 16th century. I thought it was like um, blood, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of looks like something's exploding or it's like a jet pack. (laughs) That's what it looks like to me. So this idea was to attach glass jars made into gas bombs to cats captured in enemy territory, then light the fuse, and then just, fingers crossed, hope it runs back home and starts a raging fire. And the best part is this was in a really detailed manuscript about how to do war things. And it looks so much more like Monty Python. <laughs> So while there were rumors that cats often ran back to the allied camps and blew those up instead, which is hilarious to me, other scholars believe that they never actually did this. It was just an idea. But if you tried it and then you blew up your own people, wouldn't you also be like, we never tried that? I mean, cats are, well, actually you can train cats. That's another story. But still, like, get, no. <laughs> yeah. This is just beautiful. And if you're not on Patreon, which you should be, I'll have these mm-hmm. on the site because mm-hmm. it's a beautiful photo. It's just like a castle in the background with a bird flying with what looks like a jetpack. And then you got a cat running with one, too. It's very mm-hmm. similar to like the marginalia stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. So next we have the Crimean War in 1854. The main battle was a year-long siege of the Russian city Sevastopol by British and French troops. By the time the city fell, both sides were starving. Fun fact, when I was in college, one of my favorite professors, she always said, the only thing you ever need to know about Russia is that it's big and it's cold. So mm-hmm. anytime you go to war in, with Russia, you're going to lose because it's big and it's cold and you're going to starve to death. So it always reminds me when I think of Russia. And that was the answer on test, big and cold. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, there's more to Russia, but that sums it up. You're going to freeze to death and you're going to starve before you get anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
So British Lieutenant William Gare was searching a Russian cellar for food when he noticed a cat sitting on a pile of rubble who was covered in dust and grime. He named the cat Tom and brought him to the officer's shelter where they noticed he was remaining very well fed while the rest of them were starving. So they decided to follow Tom into the city and see where he was going. And he led them to a perfect supply of food in a storeroom that was covered in rubble. So they would have never found it, but it was a stockpile from the Russians, the civilians. So he saved their lives. Probably was really mad about it too. He's like, that's mine. (laughs) Like there. And you guys are taking it. So our little sweet baby Tom was also called Crimean Tom or Sevastopol Tom. He saved the British and French troops from starvation and became a big damn hero. Gare brought Tom to England after the war and took care of him until he died in 1856. This was one of those turns I did not see coming because then he was taxidermied and donated to the Royal United Services Institution. They labeled him Crimean Tom and it passed through a lot of hands. But um, at one point, the National Army Museum's collection purchased him in a flea market in 1950. Oh, poor Tom. Poor Tom. He deserved better than that. So at least he wasn't him. ground up for fertilizer. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> so pour one out for poor Tom. <laughs> Got some water. <laughs> <laughs> And admittedly, that took a turn while I was researching because I thought it was going to be like, and we built him a statue in the square. (laughs) It was like, nope, that didn't happen. Jesus. All right. So we're going to fast forward to the modern era (laughs) with the war to end all wars. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Life in trenches of World War I was absolute hell. If an enemy bullet, artillery shell, or gas canister didn't kill you, the cesspool of diseases that formed in the puddles would probably do the job. And then to make matters worse, you're in a damp, dingy, dirty environment that's just made to be a perfect breeding ground for rats that carry gross diseases. Yep. So not a good time. Nope. Not at all. And it's not like you can put traps down there because you're like crawling around and you have to sleep and lay in there. And chance catching yourself in a rat trap every day. So an estimated 500,000 cats were dispatched to the trenches where they killed rats and mice. And some were used as gas detectors because cats are so sensitive to smell. Mm-hmm. At Especially when the cats yeeted themselves away. It's like, oh, we're not going that way. <laughs> Follow the cat. <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> and then at sea, cats had the run of the ship and they provided protection from vermin again. Without them, the crew would find themselves overrun by rats and mice that would eat their provisions, chew through ropes, and spread diseases. So pretty much all things having to do with cats is going to be mostly about their ability to... Uh, eat mice and save you from impending yeah a little repetitive theme but an important one at that Mm -hmm. though they weren't the most effective rodent killers they were just the one that was most open to being um fed by humans (laughs) 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 they're like this is a good gig (laughs) and at this point, cats became like a little bit more than just a tool. They became morale boosters that offered comfort for the military during the war. So tucking a cat into the crook of your arm, feeding it your rations, giving it life amid wreckage and danger, 
would be a way of reminding yourself that there's a reason to go home. And for a lot of them, it said it reminded them that they're still human and they had the capability of being gentle and kind. Oh, oh, oh just I'm sorry, I'm just imagining sh- soldiers like tucking a cat into their arm and I'm like, let me cry a little. <laughs> all the tears now. All yeah. the tears. Yeah, so it wasn't all doom and gloom for the cats. Many of the troops loved them and cared for them in between battles and they made them part of their unit. So let me show you this photo. <gasps> photos. I'm so, happy. so many kitty photos. Okay, here we go. So this picture shows a bunch of them hanging out in between, you know, work. And they're all playing with Look how he's tucked into his arms. Oh, my God. Insane. And it's just like pure joy. There are so many of these photos of them just hanging out, you know, with each other reading. But there's always a cat around. And it looks like those two dudes are both like. We are all about the cat. Yes, they're so, they're smiling. They're just like this. That is one so that's looking at the cat is totally being like, "You are gorgeous." He's just telling the cat how pretty it is. You can tell. <laughs> they made hammocks for the cats. <laughs> little little barracks, and then there's <laughs> they're in the trenches and they're feeding the cats while they're. Oh my god! And this one right here is just a huge group of soldiers. But and then you zoom in, one of them has a cat on his shoulder. Shoulder cats. Shoulder cats. Really excited. (laughs) Simulation. I know. And it wasn't all doomed for the cats, though. Many of the troops loved and cared for them between battles, like we said before. And some of them made them part of their unit. So this kitty on the plane was made part of the Army Air Corps. And his name was Spark Plug. Let me write that down so I can use it at work. <laughs> yeah, so he's on the like, little nose of the plane. It's just too much. Too much cuteness. No one else will get the reference, but I'm totally going to name a cat that. <laughs> oh. And cats were also able to freely cross no man's land. So during the famous Christmas truce of 1914, many soldiers wished for peace and friendship between the troops, you know, warring factions that day. So they would tie messages of peace on the collars and send them across no man's land to the German side. Oh I mean, God. can you imagine that in the movies? About that. Anytime there's like a war movie and there's an animal shows up on screen, I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, no. Honestly, same. I still can't watch some of the ones that I know are probably amazing movies, but I can't do it. So cats also had a significant role in World War II, continuing their works on ships, preserving precious food stores, preventing disease spreads, and offering invaluable companionship and entertainment. All right. So on the eastern front of World War II, this is Morka, who is nicknamed the Battle Cat of Stalingrad. Look at him at work. <laughs> See him? I can't tell if there's like something... Between his neck and the camera, or if there's something on his neck, like right there, yeah, I think so because they put paper, they tied them. Oh, up. okay. I was like, he's blooming. It looks like a flower. <laughs> <laughs> so the Russian commander had noticed that Morka always found his way back to his food dish, no matter where he went during the day. So they, 
I like how a lot of sources are like, they ordered the cat to accompany. You don't order cats to do anything for one. But they had him go scouting on missions in the city where reports on German troops were attached to his collar. The cat then crossed the city, turned battlefield in search of the headquarters where he received food, treats, and attention. After several successful missions, Morka went missing in action and his <gasps> is unknown. But I'm going to just say that he found some food and some... But he he was adopted by yeah. someone who was he- like... You should not be in a war field, young man. And you're too handsome for that. Yes, he's way too handsome. He's a very fluffy kitty. And I mm-hmm. bet he found a good family and lived a long life. <laughs> Much poof poof. Faith was a church cat at the Church of St. Augustine in St. Faith in London's Waddling Street during the Blitz and World War II. In September 1940, the church was hit by the Luftwaffe and completely destroyed it. Faith protected her kitten panda in the church basement and was found by rescuers the next day. The story of the cat who saved her kitten in the basement became a well-known symbol for the keep calm and carry on movement. Oh my God. Yeah. So she was kind of like an unofficial spokesperson. Spokes kitty. <laughs> Not a person. <laughs> I was like, even then like panda, we're naming this cat panda. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So striped tabby Princess Papule was born on July 4th, 1944 at the Pearl Harbor Navy Base in Hawaii. Puli, as she was known to the sailors, was brought aboard the attack transport USS Fremont by crewman James Lynch. The ship fought in the Pacific Theater of World War II and participated in invasions of, oh Lord, Saipan, Palu, Lit, Lit, Lit. And Iwo Jima, I don't know the words. Puli chose to sleep in the mailroom during battles. Upon crossing the equator for the first time, the tabby participated in the ceremony, transforming inexperienced sailors from polywalks to sea hardened shellbacks. Oh my god. She was a legit she was little sailor. <laughs> probably the best little sailor ever. They issued her her own uniform and she was awarded three service ribbons and four battle stars for her time in the Navy. Oh, my God. Do we have pictures of her in her uniform? So there's Pooley with the little, little <gasps> jacket with her ribbons and her medals. Oh, let me, let me look at this lady. Oh, my God. Pooley. I'm Pooley. I just, I love her so much. So after the war, Puli put back on her uniform for the Los Angeles Times story celebrating her 15th birthday. All right. So now let's meet Unsinkable Sam. He is a cat that allegedly survived not one, but three ship sinkings in World War II. So this little guy is either really lucky or incredibly unlucky. (laughs) Jury's still out. I'm not sure. It's triplets. (laughs) Yeah. So, the 18th of May, 1941, the German battleship Bismarck set sail on its first and only offensive mission into the Atlantic. So, boo Nazis, first of all. Less than a week later, it managed to sink the HMS Hood, the pride of the Royal Navy. So, the Brits are pissed. And nine days later, a violent retaliation bombardment completely destroyed the Bismarck, killing more than 2,000 of its crew. Among the few survivors was the ship's cat, or so the story goes. <laughs> like, how did I know? <laughs> As the legend says, another British battleship, the HMS Crossick, 
began attempting to rescue survivors of the sunken Bismarck in the open sea. Crew members spotted the lucky cat taking refuge on a floating plank. Obviously, he couldn't tell them his name, so the Allied sailors gave him a new one, and it was Oscar. But then, on the 24th of October, the Crossick too floated into the danger zone, danger zone, when it was fatally torpedoed by the German U-boats. Womp womp. <laughs> a third of the ship was blown off, and three days later, the HMS Crossick sank near Gibraltar. Oscar lost his new home, but once again, kept his life. So, my lives, am I right? <laughs> He's doing pretty well. And then at this point, our furry friend got a new nickname, Unsinkable Sam. He was then transferred to the aircraft carry HMS Ark Royal, the very boat that hosted the planes that destroyed his first home. (laughs) But I'm sure he didn't care because fuck Nazis and he's a cat. But yeah, as long as there was food. (laughs) Symbolism, yeah. (laughs) But... On November 14th, the Ark Royal 2 suffered a torpedo attack, which subsequently sank it 30 miles from Gibraltar. Another womp womp. He was allegedly rescued for the third time by the HMS Legion, another ship under the British Royal Navy fleet. Oscar was supposedly found angry and quite unharmed. (laughs) I mean, I'd be pissed, too, if I had to, like, go swimming in the ocean unannounced three times. Yeah, I would be very cranky. <laughs> like, I don't like like my home explodes. I have to get wet. There's sharks. <laughs> I don't speak your language. <laughs> like, I like, can I just go to the mainland, please? <laughs> yes. Whatever happened to Unsinkable Sam after surviving this third shipwreck? Well, according to the Britain's Royal Museum in Greenwich, the cat retired to land where he was placed in the offices of the governor of Gibraltar. He was later adopted by a seaman who lived in Belfast, where he lived a nice life and died in 1955. Good. But, like most legendary tales, the story of this cat has been repeatedly poking holes in it. A lot of people are kind of shitting on this lovely story and saying it doesn't. It's not real. For one, there's no record of a cat having been brought aboard the Bismarck, the first ship that went boom. And... That was according to a few survivors. But if a cat was a stowaway on a massive ship and only 112 people survived, it's possible they never saw the cat. I mean, if they had food there, they had mice. And if Mm -hmm. they had mice there, the the cats would probably come. Yeah, so that I can understand. I think he still existed. I'm a believer in unsinkable Sam. (laughs) And then there's also an issue of what he looked like. There are two different portraits that are suspected to be Oscar showing them as a black and white tuxedo cat. One is a pastel drawing made by an unknown artist, which I will show you now. I love a good tuxedo. Oh, it's in the water. I don't like that. Yeah, his tail's in the water. He's on he looks the- most upset. He does not look happy. He looks like, who did this? So then the second photo people think is... So the other one is this photo. Look at that handsome little fella. They can prove that this is not him because when you look up really close, his tag says Amethyst, which is another wartime cat that we'll talk about in a little bit. And then there was a third photo where somebody said he was an orange tabby. But again, that's not likely because... 
a lot of people are saying, why would somebody make this pastel of a cat if he didn't exist? Right. And, but then on flip side, somebody heard the story first and was like, I'm going to draw this cat. So it could go either way. But I would like to believe that the unsinkable Sam did exist. Yes. Because when, like we mentioned this whole episode, cats are a hot commodity when there's mice. So mm-hmm. it would make perfect sense that each boat would be like, ooh, a cat. I got mice. And pick up a cat. <laughs> I mean, I think the military should just adopt that policy. Mm-hmm. Yes, always. Always save the cat. And even if it's not true, it does kind of make sense that they would create the story of miraculously surviving as like a a little Morale bit of hope and more. Who was the kitty with the amethyst? We will know now. Here's his face while I talk about him. He's so cute. Oh, I not I like that picture so much better. It doesn't look terrified. He does. He looks really sassy. I really enjoy this. That's a seductive pose. Yeah. Like, those little paws are across and like the head over, like looking over the shoulder, like, hi. Yes. And his name is Simon. Oh, my God. And Simon is just the goodest boy. And he received three medals, including the Dickin Medal for Animal Gallantry. Oh. oh. I just love him. So Simon got his job on the ship in 1948. So this is a little bit after World War II ended when the HMS Amethyst pulled into port on Stonecutters Island in Hong Kong for supplies. A seaman from the ship, George Hickenbottom. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) He's probably from Arkansas. (laughs) Probably. He found Simon on a dockyard and he was looking really sad and hungry. So he decided he was going to smuggle our little kitty onto the ship. And he at first hid him in his own cabin. Like nobody would notice a cat. (laughs) So unhappy at being confined in his small space of this cabin, he soon went exploring. The cat was out of the bag, so to speak. But fortunately, the ship's captain was a cat lover as well. So it was not long before Simon could be seen following the captain on his regular inspections. That is Oh, I wish there were video cameras back then. I know. I want to see kitty inspections. I love that. Can we have a recreation, please? (laughs) Dramatic recreation. This is important. This is historical. (laughs) We need a recreation. From then on, it was only a matter of time before Simon's feline charisma won over the entire crew. But Simon was not just a passenger. Soon after his arrival, he he became very skilled at rat catching, which sealed the deal, making him a valued crew member. I just love how after a while, they're not cats anymore. They're legit servicemen. (laughs) We need a movie. We do. Then in April 1949, Amethyst received orders to steam up the Yangtze River from Shanghai to Nanking to relieve the HMS consort, which was guarding the British embassy. Things about to get intense. So the communists were about to capture the town and the personnel might have to be evacuated. The HMS Amethyst had sailed 100 miles up the river when the ship came under fire from the army. The ship was grounded on a mud bank and the crew took heavy casualties with many crew members, including the captain, being injured or dead. Simon was among the injured as he was hit by shrapnel from a shell which exploded nearby. As any cat will do when they're injured, he crawled into one of the ship's crannies to hide. But after a few days, he emerged on the deck, probably driven by hunger. He was very ill and weak. 
Fortunately for Simon, most of the injured crew had been evacuated to land to be treated in a nearby hospital, so the ship's doctor had time to attend to Simon's injuries. The shrapnel was removed, and Simon was fed and rehydrated. Nevertheless, the cat was so weak, the doctor didn't think he was going to make the night. However, Simon not only survived, but despite his injuries, he was back on rat-catching duty after just a few days. Cats are super resilient. Yes. At that time, keeping the rat population down was really necessary. The ship was stranded and two attempts to rescue them had failed. The food supplies were running low and there was certainly nothing to spare from the rats. Simon caught at least one rat a day, often more, which in itself was excellent for the crew's morale. It was probably if you're bored and injured and you're just like, yeah, get them, kitty. (laughs) (laughs) Got like bets going how many he's going to kill. But there was one more duty for Simon Walt, whose rank was now upgraded to Able Sea Cat, which is the equivalent of the Able Seaman. As the injured sailors were brought back to the ship, the doctor thought that having Simon there to keep them company would help their morale and recovery. So from then on, Simon divided his duty between catching rats and spending time in the bunks of the injured crewmen, where he was indeed a friendly and comforting presence. It's been proven cats help you heal. Mm-hmm. Like the purring. And yeah, yeah, they say you'll heal much faster with a cat. So after 101 days, the ship was repaired sufficiently to sail again. With no further possibility of rescue, the decision was made to just make a run for it. Oh, so scary. So on the night of July 30th, 1949, Amethyst left under the cover of darkness after a brisk fire fire. Oh my God, firefighter. That's not the word. Firefight with the shore batteries made it to the open sea. On the 1st of August, a special presentation was held to acknowledge the bravery of the crew. Among those honored was the able sea cat Simon, who received the Amethyst campaign ribbon. Oh my God, he's so cute. Word about Simon's huge contribution spread quickly. And it was decided that Simon should receive the PDSA Dickin Medal. It says Dickin. I hope I'm saying that right because it makes me want to giggle, but (laughs) (laughs) it's just Dickin, so I don't know, which was awarded in August of 1949. The medal is the most famous and the oldest of the charity's awards. It was instituted in 1943 by the PDSA's founder, Maria Dickin. Okay, that makes sense. It acknowledges outstanding acts of bravery displayed by animals servicing the armed forces or civil defense units in any war worldwide. The medal is recognized as the animal's Victoria Cross, and it's the highest British honor for animal bravery in military conflicts. And Simon is the only cat to have gotten this medal and the only one from the Royal Navy. He's special. He's very special. We do need a movie. He does. Okay, it's about to get really sad, and I'm sorry. (laughs) So eventually, the HMS Amethyst sailed to England, where Simon had to be confined to quarantine for six months because not even the most famous animals could avoid British quarantine regulations. But Simon was probably the most pampered animal in quarantine. He received lots of attention from quarantine staff, as well as frequent visits from his crew friends. The medal presentation was set set for the 11th of December, Sadly, only three weeks after his arrival in England, Simon became very ill with a viral infection. Although he was rushed to the vet and given the best health care possible for an animal, his system just wasn't able to cope with the new disease because he was weakened from the shrapnel. 
So he passed away on November 28, 1949. <laughs> I know. I just ruined it. Everybody's night. My work brain went, I wonder what viral infection. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't say, but it did say like his heart was weak because of shrapnel. And-, and he, I forgot what country you said they picked him up in. Uh, Hong Kong. So they, Kong. by bringing him to the UK, K, he would have been introduced to a whole new set of yes. contagious diseases that he would have had no, like, passed on immunity to. Yes. Oh so he was giving a full-ass funeral where thousands of people came. He was buried in an animal cemetery at Ilford, east of London, and the gravestone says, in memory of Simon, served in the HMS Amethyst, May 1948 to September 1949, Awarded Dick and Medal, August 1949. Died 28th of November 1949. Throughout the Yangtze incident, his behavior was one of the highest order. Oh. Oh, so, yes, nearly a thousand people attended his funeral, including the entire crew of the Amethyst. That shit was sad. But he's such an extraordinary kitty. I know. Even when he was in the hospital, they said that people were sending him letters. Like, like <laughs> This cat was loved. <laughs> that was like a grumpy cat before grumpy cat. Yes. And I can't end it on that. So one more. <laughs> We're going to go to 2004. When Staff Sergeant Rick Boosfield learned his combat team would be leaving Iraq in March of 2004, he knew that their cat Hammer needed to come too. The striped Egyptian Mao had been born on the Balad Air Base, located 50 miles north of Baghdad. Quote, he has been through mortar attacks. He jumped and gets scared like the rest of us, Boonsville said. While under attack, soldiers tucked the cat into body armor for safety. In exchange, he hunted mice in the mess hall. His role as mouser and stress therapist earned him the title of private first class and honorary team status. So Boosfield reached out to Alley Cat allies and military mascots for help bringing Hammer to the United States. The organizations raised $2,500 for Hammer sterilization shots, paperwork, and flight from Kuwait. Boosfield welcomed the feline veteran into his Colorado home to live with the family's five other cats, as well as their dog, hamster, and gecko. Oh, my God. Isn't yeah. it is precious? He's very kissy. And I've I've heard that like a lot, especially with like Iraq and Afghanistan. So many soldiers have been there for so long, and they really bond with these animals. So there are organizations that will help them get them. Yeah, out. I I've heard of um, Alley Cat. Mm-hmm. I know them. So oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, Yay. not like personally, but I they same circles type thing. <laughs> And I lied. There was one more. My bad. <laughs> and finally, Salty was a, I love the name, Salty was a U.S. Coast Guard mascot and became the first cat to take part in a rescue mission when she stowed away with her kitten on an amphibian reconnaissance plane just before it took off to effect a rescue of a pilot who had come down at sea. She was based in San Diego Coast Guard Air Station in California. And this is just the best photo the dude's got his little binoculars, oh. and then you got a cat on one leg and her kitten on the other, and he just looks so chill. <laughs> she she doesn't look happy. The kitten's like, that's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's she looks okay stressed, but she's like, we are in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, what are we doing? 
I did not give permission. <laughs> like I, I've made a mistake. <laughs> I just like the pilot. Can, yeah, just doesn't care. He's probably like, hell yeah, I got a cat. <laughs> Let's go rescue this person. Then they're gonna show up and they'll be like, oh my god, you got a cat. <laughs> Here's some comfort therapy on the way home. <laughs> yeah, sorry about your wreck, man. Here's a cat. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, and there's so many more cats that have done amazing things. I just grabbed a little bit from each war. But yeah, cats, I think, are overlooked because, like I said in the beginning, they're unpredictable. They're not necessarily trained like a dog in war zones and stuff, but they are very, they're invaluable. And there's just something about a cat's love. I could understand, like, having a tiny kitten in a trench somewhere. Like, something about that would be different. You know, the first time the little kitten walks up to you and just kind of like paws at your face, you're done. You're done. You're like, no, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. This was so much fun. I learned so much. I'm going to have to get that book and read more about genetics. So much fun. Every time you're here, it's a joy. I love hearing about the kitties and what you do. Oh, I love being here and spending time with you. I want to thank Natalie again for joining me. I had such a great time. This theme is amazing, guys. And it was very photo heavy. So all the photos are going to be on all the social media. That's Historical AF Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then also I will have all of them on the website. And that's historicalafpodcast.com. And if you want to watch this live and watch the pictures pop up as we talk, as always, you can join Patreon. That's patreon.com slash historical AF pod. And there's a whole lot of benefits besides that. You can get merch, you get stuff in the mail, and you get extra content. I just recorded three art history episodes and I am so pumped about them going up. And then I also do like a Hollywood versus history video where I watch a movie and then I go over what is accurate or not shocker they are almost always inaccurate if you'd like to email me a story for the extra af episodes that's historical af pod at gmail.com and if you would like to get some merch that's shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical af pod and as always all the links to all the things i talk about is on the website again that is historical af podcast.com murray that's rude All right, guys, I'll see you next week for Cats Part 2 with special guest Lucy from Wine and Crime. I am so excited. Okay, bye. Hello, and welcome to Boozed Podcast, where we get supernatural and shit-faced. I'm your host, Camille Monet, and I invite you to join me and my guest every other Thursday for Spirited Stories. We look at each other and we go, did that just happen? And then her hand, she still had the sucker. It fell over, and then it stood back up, and then the gate closed. Lush lore. And as it turns out, Maria, in a former life, was an evil witch. Oh. (laughs) And intoxicating inquiries. I mean, I know some hogs can be really freaking big. They can. They can be huge. They're huge. They'll eat you, so, I mean... Wait, I'm sorry, what? Pigs will eat you. Pour a drink, warm up the Ouija board, and prepare to get three ghost sheets to the wind. You can summon a new episode every other Thursday on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening and don't forget, get boozed.
Once every harvest moon, a talk show comes along that is so groundbreaking, raising the bar to such heights that other podcasts step back and say, wow, that show's got it figured out. With a host tempered in focus, commitment, and sheer will, this is The Derek Duvall Show. Pop culture, news, and interviews with fascinating people that channel the great Edward R. Murrow and Walter Cronkite. The Derek Duvall Show. Find him on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show and find his new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podchaser. The Derek Duvall Show. The best thing to happen to hump days since the Geico camel. What, what?